Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hello out there. My name is Erica Maldonado-Singh. I'm the Community Engagement Manager at the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I want to welcome you to this Dornsife Dialogue, focused on what we're calling the pandemic election. If you'd like, you can begin to submit your questions now in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Our speakers will do their best to respond to as many as they can. Now I'll turn it over to Amber Miller, Dean of the USC Dornsife College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. Hi, everybody. Welcome. And thanks for joining us at our first online Dornsife Dialogue of 2020. Uh, the goal of this series is to invite our extended Dornsife community to hear from our top-level scholars, writers, and thinkers about issues of importance to all of our lives and our communities. This week, we'll start by talking about our 2020 election. It seems like a world ago that um, the, this primary election was on the front page of our newspapers, given what we've all been dealing with over the past month. But we still have an important election this coming November and important news as of just yesterday about Bernie Sanders dropping out of the race. We are fortunate at USC Dornsife in our Center for the Political Future to have a center that's led by two of the most renowned, accomplished, and often hilarious political strategists out there, Bob Shrum and Mike Murphy. I know you're here to hear from them and not me, so I'll give you a brief introduction to the two of them and then pass it off to them. Mike Murphy is an accomplished Republican strategist who's worked on six Republican campaigns. You may remember him from the 2000 GOP primaries um, as a senior strategist for Senator John McCain. Um, he also appears frequently on NBC, CNN, NPR, and other venues to talk about his political perspective. Our other panelist is um, Professor Bob Shrum. He's the Carmen and Lewis Warshaw Chair in Practical Politics. He has served as a consultant for high-level Democratic campaigns and administrations, including Ted Kennedy, John Kerry, Al Gore, and most relevantly to this campaign, also Joe Biden. Um, some of you may or may not want to ask about a certain bet that our two panelists had regarding uh, the candidacy of Joe Biden. So without further ado, I will turn it over to the two of them. Thank you again for being here. This is Bob Trum. Thank you, Dean Miller. Mike and I are thrilled to do this. We've got to find a way to communicate in this very unusual time. I'd say two preliminary things. First, the dean, who is a driving force behind all this, is a visionary and has really led Dornsife in new and exciting directions. Uh, secondly, we're going to talk about the politics of the pandemic election. But I want to begin by saying that we're all mindful of the people who are fearful, who are hurt, who are suffering, and who have died, and our hearts go out to them. That said, politics never stops. And right now, we are having the most unusual election of our lifetime, no ordinary election. And people talk about it being frozen in place by the pandemic. I think that's true, but I'm a contrarian on this, I think it helps Biden. I think the, if you look at Donald Trump, he got a kind of bump at the beginning of these press conferences. I think it was a bump of hope, not of estimation. And it's kind of come down. And I think the reason it's come down is because the press conferences aren't very effective. And so right now, I suspect that people are out there saying, he's the only president we've got. We hope he does well. But the one thing we can't depend on is the idea that we'd like to have him as president for the next four years. But that's just one dimension of this pandemic election. So I'm going to ask Mike what he thinks. How is the pandemic going to change this campaign? Well, first, Bob, it's great to join you here electronically as we uh, practice appropriate social distance. Normally, you and I only have social distance when you start cranking up the left-wing stuff and I <laughs> run across the room, but we're, we're doing a little more electronically now, and I want to thank Dean Miller for the brainstorm uh, to have this and all the support she's given us at the center and join you in, in saluting the, the people in the first responder and medical communities who are, are just showing incredible selfless courage in the front lines of this awful pandemic. So to politics, 
I think there are two theories. Now, I'm the Republican here, so one of the things I'm going to try to do in the name of fairness is make the case that I think a Trump supporter would make. I, I've been anti-Trump since 1992 when I worked in New Jersey for Governor Whitman, and, and he was in Atlantic City. So I think you're, you're kind of see where I'm landing, but there, there is an argument. So I agree with you. The strength of Trump in the past has been kind of the entertainment value. And I think there's been a lot of questioning in, in kind of the, the civic elite in America. Why didn't the earlier scandals hurt him? You know, Mueller, the investigations, the, some of the ridiculous antics in D.C. And my view on that is a lot of voters have been able to kind of just toss that stuff aside as another Washington food fight. Yeah, they're calling each other names. They all do it. They're all playing games. It doesn't mean anything in my life. So when the stakes are low like that, in some ways, Politics gets devalued to entertainment, and that's where Trump, with his ability to change the subject, to call a name, to act in a way we've never had a president act before, uh, his critics would say to lie, cheat and steal a lot, has given him certain advantages in changing the topics in the reality show of Washington politics. But now, with a pandemic that is killing people and changing lives, I mean, we basically put the American economy, the world economy, on pause. Schools are shut down. My wife and I have a six-year-old. We're I'm learning how to be an incredibly ineffective homeschool teacher. Lives are being shaken up economically, socially, psychologically, every other way. So the stakes are much higher now. And can Trump, where competence has been maybe his early brand, but not his performance, can he succeed in a world where the stakes are high and failure has a big cost? So I think that's threat number one. Threat number two, of course, is the economic pain this pandemic is going to engender. Trump's ace card, as we've talked, Bob, has been, well, you may not like me, but I can run a good economy. You're all working. Well, no, that is in jeopardy. And then I think third and finally, his divisive tone in a time when I think the country is looking for the opposite could be an anchor. Well, last problem Trump has, his polling has been bad for a year. He's, it's ticked up a little in the, in the crisis. But look at like Fauci's numbers. He's become a rock star, 70, 80%. A lot of the governors have done very well politically because people are rallying behind them. Trump has inched up, but he's gone from you know, bad, extremely mediocre. There's kind of a ceiling on Trump with half the country. So that, that's the argument against. Then I'll wrap up quickly. The argument for is simple. We will come out of this thing. The economy will in time recover, and the president will be able to say, and there will be a feeling of goodwill in the country, we're through it, forward, you know I can run the economy, I'm the person to put it back together. Now let me tell you everything that's terrible about Joe Biden. So if the Biden people can manage that offense well, I think they do have the advantage in the fall. You know, I, I noticed that Mike has a Nixon sign over his shoulder. I wish he was making the case for Nixon. I'd be more sympathetic than I, than I am for Trump. Nixon sure. was at least competent. And I don't think, Mike, that you really believe that Trump case. And I don't think it's any more credible, actually, than the idea that Joe Biden was going to fall apart. You and I had a bet that Biden would be gone by Christmas. You said he would. I said he wouldn't. Then you thought he might be gone by Iowa. No, he wasn't gone by Iowa. And today he's the presumed nominee. Uh, well, I let think... me just interrupt for equal time on the bet. because <laughs> this, is, this is true. It has been a fascinating bet. I was short Biden in the primaries. I thought somebody would beat him because people wanted more generational change. So we made this crazy bet. I should have asked for odds that Biden would be out by Christmas. Then I was wrong. And you were very kind about the bet. Then Biden lost New Hampshire, and you came to me and said, oh, the bet's over, I'm screwed. I guess we're going to call this one a tie, because back then, you were, before that, you were predicting he was the nominee, and we both kind of thought it was over. Then he had the greatest comeback in American politics, so I, I will wear my crown of losing that bet, but it, it was quite a bumpy ride. Well, I don't want to adjudicate it, but what I was doing after <laughs> New Hampshire was saying, I'll let you off the hook. Uh, I still <laughs> thought that he was a viable candidate and actually said it on television. But let me talk about the Trump case for a minute and then go to what I think is also likely or possible in this campaign. I think Trump will be held accountable for lives lost. I think his base is way too small, and he seems determined to speak to his base all the time and not to anybody else. Now, that worked for George W. Bush in 2004, just barely by a margin of 60,000 votes in Ohio, but he had a much bigger base. He had, for example, 44% of Latinos supporting him. Right now, I think Trump is not only not talking to independents, he's alienating. I think he's not only not talking to suburban women, he's alienating. So I think he's going to have a big hill to climb, and I don't think this economy is going to recover very fast at all. I think we're going to see it go down 
go down steeply. It may come back in the fourth quarter, may come back a little in the third quarter. But as you and I know, people tend to look at the economy in the summer, and that's when they kind of make their judgment before an election. The other thing I think is going to happen because of the virtual world we live in is that we may have a virtual convention, and then we may have a virtual campaign, and that's going to put a premium on a whole different kind of rhetoric. FDR's fireside chats, JFK speeches on civil rights, Cuba, and the economy, Ronald Reagan's Oval Office addresses. I think I, Biden can do those pretty well. I think it is the format least suited to Donald Trump. And I think he may push very, very hard, no matter what the public health implications are, for a convention in August. And I think that could backfire too. But we're going to look at a campaign unlike any we've ever seen. Yeah, no, look, I agree. And my, I've said for two years the country wants to fire Trump based on the polling data. And now they've got more reasons than ever to do it. And the Democrats with Biden have nominated somebody that at least on paper, I think there are questions about performance, but it has improved over the last 10 weeks, somebody on paper who's a competitive challenger for him. So if, you, if I've said for you, I, I bet, I bet he's going to lose. But again, here, here is something I think that is discounted about Trump. And, and you're right. I, I often say Trump is in a demographic cul-de-sac. There aren't enough grumpy old white guys in the country. And he's lost the suburbs. He's lost suburban Republicans. That's why the Democrats won the House. And unless he can get them back, he's really in trouble just in the numbers. So, I, I mean, I concur with all that. But one thing I think Democrats who are ultra-confident about this campaign have to be careful about uh, I'll go to the, the great social scientist, George Lakoff, who has done a lot about sort of how the subtext and how the words deconstruct in political messaging. He wrote a famous book, Don't Think of an Elephant. Well, what are you thinking about right now? You're thinking about an elephant. So Trump gets out there, and every Democrat in the country is horrified by the Trump show because he lies, he makes stuff up, he tries to prescribe medicine. I mean, it is horrible. I'm offended by it. But the deconstruction is, for plenty of voters in Trump's America who happen to be very favorably placed in the Electoral College, as the Clinton campaign learned last time, closely, is you hear Trump saying, we're going to be fine. It's going to come roaring back. There are great new drugs, fabulous drugs, miracle drugs. It's magnificent. Everything's going to, we're going to be fine. And a lot of the Democratic message has been, it's the end of the world. We're going to have a quarter million dead or 150,000 dead. And there's going to be a great depression. And the cable news world is an amplifier of this. Well, now it's looking like the new Fauci estimates are going to be under 100,000 dead. So there, I think there is going to be a win. And Trump's message reduces to we're going to get through this because we're the greatest country in the world. And the critical message reduces to it's incredibly bad. It's awful. And under the cover, and Biden's not doing this, but I think others can be demagogued into saying, being accused of doing this. They're rooting for the country to fail to hurt Donald Trump politically. And that is very dangerous stuff. I, I think Trump deserves richly the sneering subtext that he gets on cable television from CNN and MSNBC. But that is fuel for Republican resentment voters that like Trump. And they're in the right places. So it, 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 this is dangerous rocket fuel. And I, I don't think it's quite the slam dunk for the Dems that they think it is. Ultimately, I do think Trump's in trouble and probably lose, but I think there's more risk there than, than increasingly overconfident Dems think. I think analytically, you're making a pretty good case for Trump, maybe the best case that could be made. I think it would be a huge mistake on the part of Democrats to look like they are hoping that right. the pandemic doesn't get solved. I don't think it's fair to say that they're doing that but on the other hand, I think the Trump campaign will argue that. In terms of Trump's voters being placed in an advantageous place in terms of the Electoral College, the truth is the last time he drew to a royal flush in three states, changed 37,000 votes in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, he's not president. It's tough to draw to a royal flush a second time, especially when he's been president and people can't any longer say, well, if he gets elected, he's going to be kind of different. So I think that, that we're going to look at a Trump situation where, God, I hope that we get out of this thing. I hope that we're okay in a month or two months. Fauci doesn't sound like that. And I'm not sure that the winning argument is, listen, only as many people got, died as got killed in Vietnam. I mean, that's a kind of weak argument in my view. But Democrats, you're right, Mike, Democrats have to be careful here.
Let me ask you about some other, another subject. Bernie Sanders dropped out yesterday, sort of. Mm -hmm. Suspended his campaign, going to keep yes. his name on the ballot. My own guess is that he's going to make peace with Biden. There's a survey out today saying that 87% of his voters say they'll vote for Biden. I suspect that will go up. Do you think that's true? Oh, yeah. Look, I, I think the incumbent defines the race. That's Trump. And Bernie voters want to fire Trump. And I think Bernie will be supportive. It took him a long time to get there. But that is the psychology of candidates who don't get to be who they are by ever quitting. And Bernie's one of these guys who likes the role of crusader. He's really not a serious legislator, never has been. But he loves to leave a, a movement. So he's trying to turn a campaign that didn't make it into some kind of movement ideologically. But in the end, I think he will do what he can to help Biden. I think Biden has a similar problem to what Barack Obama had when he beat Hillary Clinton, which is, you know, the media, and this goes back to cave painting, so it's just built into our, our anthropology and our, our wiring, but the media loves conflict. And that's why they gave Trump so much attention in the beginning. He, he's good business. And so the idea that there's an endless war between Bernie supporters and Biden supporters, I can never forget screaming at the television at the coverage of the Democratic convention where the, the narrative was angry Hillary delegates will never vote for Obama. And meanwhile, over in McCain world, I wasn't in that room, but I, I heard about it because I wasn't working for John in the second campaign. That's where the original German, the idea, hey, it says on TV that women are mad at Obama. Women Democrats <laughs> never go, let's get a woman. And so uh, next stop, Sarah Palin. So there will be a small, very vocal group of Bernie supporters who are purists who will say that Biden is a compromised corporate Democrat and they're staying home and there will be alienated voters like last time. And there's a parallel to McGovern and Wallace, as you know, in, in the history who are attracted to the other candidate, in this case, Trump, who preys on alienation. So this is something the Biden people have to watch. And I think the media will make it a bigger thing than it ought to be. So they shouldn't be kind of suckered in. I think the biggest mistake for Biden would be to think, OK, this is a huge, huge problem defining problems. So I got to go pander to the hard movement left in the Democratic Party on a lot of policy. That opens up a tremendous cornucopia of opportunities for Donald Trump to do what Donald Trump will want to do and the Republican machinery will want to do, which is make the election a referendum on Joe Biden, not on Donald Trump. Think I'm bad? He's terrible. And anything the Biden can, campaign can do to Teflon up and be too slippery and too adroit to let that happen and keep the spotlight on Trump is better for Biden. So I think in the end, Biden will get him. It'll take some work and attention, but it should be adroit and clever not to create vulnerabilities on policy. Yeah, I, I think that the Biden campaign will not give in to the hard movement left. I think they'll find areas where they can agree. For example, the proposal that college tuition college, yeah. for uh, community colleges and public universities will be free for people whose families of four make under $125,000 a year. I think that's very likely. Medicare for all, single-payer system that outlaws private insurance, Joe Biden will not agree to that. I think he and Sanders will probably talk, and in the end, there will be a very robust public option. Abolishing ICE, for example, I don't think he's going to agree to that. All of that said, the Trump campaign will accuse him of favoring all those things. They'll also run a personal smear campaign against him, which they're already doing, which was magnified by a small number of the Bernie people who are on Twitter, who I don't think represent the Bernie people in general. You mentioned uh, how Sarah Palin got selected, and I think we should talk a little bit about the vice presidential choice. But before we do that, I want to go back to what we talked about at the beginning. Don't you think this is going to be a really weird campaign? Are we going to oh, see yeah. arenas? Arenas filled with 25,000 people. Is there going to be a Republican convention? Is, is Trump going to insist on one no matter what? Are they going to take everybody's temperature going in the door? This could be yeah. much, much more like before we had television and we used radio a lot, people used radio speeches to talk to folks. Right. The difference is here, you'll see them on camera like people are seeing us right now, but there won't be applause lines. So you've got to design a whole different kind of rhetoric. And what I asked you at the beginning, and I'd like to see what you think again, because we didn't really talk about it, right, is sure. a Kennedy was really good at that. A Reagan was really good at that. Uh, you know, Obama could be really good at that. But do you think Trump is suited for that? And what about Biden? 
Well, your instinct is right. There, there's going to be a lot of stuff that looks like this. So my advice to the candidates is start with better makeup. <laughs> there aren't enough Zoom filters in the world to save us. I would say that th th this is a huge area of big changes. American politics has been crowd-based, even as an anachronism. You get crowds. You spend a lot of money building crowds. The media covers crowds. What you say, and Trump has embraced this because he loves nothing more than packing a hockey arena full of people and being applauded for these Castro speeches he does. So that's been the old model. And for Trump, it's an important psychological clutch. So you get to the conventions, what do you do? Well, I think Trump will demand a convention. And I think if the Democrats are smart, they will play the public health crowd and, and make a wedge issue out of having a convention. It'll be very hard to have any convention that is anything like conventions before, even if you are trying to thermometer everybody at the door. So what we're going to see is the center of gravity of American politics shift from the crowds of the last hundred years to the screen, you know, right here, this, and what you folks at home are watching this thing on, which is a different type of communication. Like you said about radio, radio is a pretty intimate medium. You know, Biden just started a podcast, so I think they are going to waste the campaign in the world of audio where he might be able to perform well. I think he's struggled so far, partially because he has no natural platform. He's not Governor Cuomo dealing with a crisis with a daily, you know, hit TV briefing that's kind of made him the anti-Trump. He's not Trump with the presidency and the blue goose, and he can give, you know, big remarks, maybe hurting himself to some voters, but he can grab the spotlight. Biden's got nowhere to go, so they've got him trapped, you know, in like this bunker doing these hostage videos, which they're trying their best, but it's not Joe's natural thing. He sells empathy, and he's not a natural Reagan-esque direct-the-camera person. So a lot of the challenge for the Biden campaign will be figuring out how to crack that in this new world of screens. Now, I have one prediction. I do think near the end of the campaign, there could be a return to crowds, town hall type things, because the serontology, the blood testing, showing whether or not people have had the disease and are therefore essentially, we believe, hopefully immune, is a much simpler test than the do you have it test. It's very old school. They can produce millions of them quickly. Those are coming. So it will be possible to have a crowd of virus-free people for optics, but nothing like what we're used to, you know, and that'll be late. That'll be September or October. So the campaign that learns how to communicate with screens with a certain intimacy, maybe radio will come back, podcasting, of course, uh, other messages like that is going to have an advantage. And last thing, a lot of my Democratic friends are very worried. Where's Biden? What should he do? Well, I think there are things he can do on streaming television more effective than the direct-to-camera speech. I'd go back to the old Ford campaign, which you remember, Bob. You started with uh, uh, <laughs> Roosevelt, um, where they had no, the same problem no, no, with Jerry yeah, Ford. Theodore Roosevelt or Franklin Roosevelt? <laughs> no, Kermit. You, you were late to the game. But where they got Joe Garagiola, beloved sportscaster, to do these conversations with Jerry Ford. And people forget the Ford campaign went from 30 down to couple days out of winning. And I think Biden could use a sidekick like that to do conversations because he can do empathy and confidence. People like him. But there will have to be creativity. And I wouldn't worry that much because as long as the spotlight's on Trump in a high stakes situation, like we were talking about before, it's probably better for Biden than anything. So they just need to know how to emerge a little later in a way that is not crowd driven, has a contrast to antiquated Trump and his dangerous crowds, and can fit Biden's skill to sell them the best way possible on all the hundreds of millions of screens that are in our lives now. Yeah, Democrats are by nature, as David Pluff once said, bedwetters. So they run around, <laughs> they, they run around right now saying, well, we're seeing Trump every day, and we're not seeing Biden in the same way. Well, it's good that we're not seeing him in the same way, I think, if you're a Democrat. But Trump actually, the, the press conferences the last few weeks, appear to have lowered the bump that he got. Uh, in his approval rating and in his approval on handling coronaviruses. I think a couple of things about this. One, I think Donald Trump may not debate. I think he may say, uh, the debate commission is stacked. I don't want these fake mainstream media people questioning me. I'll debate if, say, Hannity is the chair of the panel, the moderator of the debate. And I think he may, may stonewall on the debate, depending on where he is in the polls. Secondly, I think that Biden's performance got better over the course of the primaries, which Agreed. people didn't notice because they kind of written him off. He wasn't good with eight, nine, or ten people on the stage, but he was a lot better in that last debate with Sanders where it was just one person on the stage. And I think he will be a lot closer to the guy who debated Paul Ryan in 2012 than to the early Biden of 2020 when he asked Trump. And the truth is, 
that while Trump's been dominating the airwaves, the polls show Biden eight, nine, ten points ahead. That doesn't mean that can't change, but it's a big deal. Finally, in terms of the vice president, it's obviously going to be a woman. I think Biden is going to pick someone and should pick someone, first of all, who can carry the case against Trump and can win the debate. In 2000, Joe Lieberman lost the debate, lost it badly to Dick Cheney. Cheney went in as the least liked candidate of the four candidates, came out as the most liked candidate. So I think they're going to focus on who can do this, who can win the debate. And secondly, people keep saying, well, which candidate can help in which state? The truth of the matter is that not since John Kennedy picked Lyndon Johnson, arguably, has a vice presidential candidate delivered a state or several states. I think Biden helped in the Midwest, actually, for Obama in 2008. But I think there may be a demographic appeal that Biden is thinking about, whether with Amy Klobuchar, it's to go after the Democrats who defected from Obama to Trump, whether it's Kamala Harris to go after African-Americans, or with someone like Michelle Lujan Grissom to see if you can energize Latino voters. I mean, you and I have both been, well, I've been through this process several times. Where should Biden go in the vice presidency? Oh, this is my favorite topic because I'm a cuckoo contrarian on it. I think it is a graveyard of overthink often. It's about risk management. You know, I often joke that if if you're um, Robert Redford's agent in Hollywood and they call you up and say, look, we know Bob's a little older now, but he's still a great star. We want to do Iron Man 6 with him. And we got this great (laughs) idea. He's going to have a sidekick, Zinc Man. And we're thinking Brad Pitt for Zinc Man. Well, the first thing Robert Redford is going to say is, you know, that's great, but we really love Abe Bogota. Although he passed away, I got to change the joke. But you got to be careful of the comparison because what the vice president really is, is a message about your priorities and who you are. It shouldn't be about your differences. That's why Clinton was so brilliant to pick Gore. He picked a slightly less impressive version of himself. New South moderate Democrat generational change. There was no real daylight there. These daylight things where somebody picks somebody who's very different are, are nothing but trouble. And the other, the stakes will be higher for Biden on this, on this dimension of it, because God bless him, Joe's 183, and there's a chance that the VP has a better than ever chance of maybe having a leg up on being the next president. But Biden put himself in a box that in Democratic identity politics, you kind of have to do, I'll pick a woman. I, I wouldn't have done it if I were him. I'd never eliminate choices. He could have Andrew Cuomo on a short list now if he had not done that, but he has. So, yeah, you start looking around for somebody who can pass the competence and daylight test. Now, if I had a magic wand for the good of the country, I would tell them to go pick Gina Raimondo in Rhode Island, who I think is the best Democratic governor on competence in the country by a mile. But the public employees don't really like her. She fought the unions. She's from a little state. I, I agree with you on the state thing. So I think right now the contenders are the ones you mentioned. Maybe add Stacey Abrams of Georgia, who's kind of got her own following in the party. But I would not give Trump race. I'd be in the risk elimination business as Biden. So the first person I'd look at if I couldn't talk him into, into Gina would be Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, who has the following things going for her. She's been politically successful in a swing state that does count a lot in the general election, where Trump is behind now and in some trouble. You want to keep it that way. Two, she's been very much in the front lines of this awful pandemic. On a per capita basis, they're right up there of New York, maybe even getting a little worse. Um, so... She, she has a story of being on the front lines, dealing with the shortcomings of the planning and, and the cost paid for it. Three, she's, she's a liberal, but she's not as progressive as other choices on the menu. Uh, she's generational. She's new. And I think she played throughout the Midwest in three of the four states that really count, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. I would add Florida, and then you can get into Arizona or the Carolinas as other critical states. She has a cultural affinity, too, much like Amy Klobuchar who you can make a case for too, but she doesn't have the Michigan story. And, you know, she, in staff circles and Democratic Party, she's known as a, a more difficult partner to work with than Gretchen, who basically has a good rep for that stuff in Michigan. Now, who knows what the downsides and flaws are, but, but right now, my guess is the Biden people, and they've hinted this, are taking a good look at Whitmer. And a governor makes sense. Get out of Washington. Yeah, I think Whitmer's one possibility, and I think because she's been part of this whole pandemic operation. None of us, very few people I knew her, but very few people knew her before this. Uh, and she's been very impressive. I also think he's taking a very close look at Kamala Harris. And I think we have to remember that when you get to the convention, he's obviously going to control it. But 
whoever the vice presidential nominee is has to be at least acceptable, I think, to the Bernie folks. You can't basically say to the Bernie folks, you started a movement, you helped change the party, you didn't get what you wanted, and now you're going to get someone you really don't like for VP. So I think that'll have an impact on it, too. Can we make another bet here live on Zoom? I, I want odds because there's a lot of pressure to go with Kamala, but I don't think you will for three reasons. One, she has proven herself to be a, a graham cracker candidate. She crumbles. She had the best liftoff of anybody, and then she totally hit the wall because she couldn't perform as a candidate. Two, when she did perform well, her second big trick was to take a cheap shot at Joe Biden who was on the right side of most fights. So knowing candidate personalities as we both do, I'll bet Biden hasn't forgotten that. And three, it shouldn't be, but it is politically risky to give Trump the weapon of race. And I think African-American voters know that, which is one reason why they embrace not one of the African-American candidates as qualified as they were. I was a big Cory Booker fan myself, but they went for Biden, the safe choice, because I think they get it and they want to beat Trump. So I think the pressure will be, as you say, but I'll bet in the end it doesn't land there. And if, if I were advising Biden, I'd say it shouldn't land there. You know, our USC Dornsife LA Times poll, as you know, over a year and a half predicted exactly what you just said, that African-Americans were not necessarily going to vote for an African-American, was not important to them. They, women were not necessarily going to vote for a woman. They wanted a candidate who, who could beat Trump. The one thing I'd say about, I'm not going to bet, I, I'll bet you that they're looking at Kamala, if that's what you're taking that, that sucker bet. I'll bet you it's going to rain in the next month. How's that? But when you say she crumbled, she doesn't crumble as a prosecutor. And the job, one of the jobs of the vice president, I think, is to prosecute the case, not against Pence, but against Trump. And that's the trick in one of these vice presidential debates. I think if you're mature, you don't care about the cheap shot. I mean, LBJ took a tremendous cheap shot at Kennedy at the opening of the 1960 Democratic Convention, attacking his father and his attendance record in the Senate. And, no, and Kennedy just brushed it off. He didn't care. Oh, but they paid it uh, back later in the way they treated him. But I, I take your point. They picked it. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we promised we'd open this up to questions, and we have like Great. 23, 24 minutes left. So yeah, Erica, let's, let's get right. fastballs for Bob here. <laughs> Our first question is from Sam Dorn, and he asks, how do you think COVID-19 will impact the potential for Democrats to retake the Senate majority. It'll help. I agree Just because that. the Republican brand has suffered, and therefore it's better for their Senate candidates. The map is good for the R's, but there's no doubt the Senate is now in play. That wasn't true six months ago, at least not yeah. to the extent yeah. it is now. Yeah, the one thing we didn't talk about, and, and it relates to this, is COVID-19, the potential for voter suppression, not letting people vote by mail. I think there's going to be a huge fight over that in this next stimulus bill in the Congress, and a huge fight in a lot of states. I found it ridiculous and obscene, actually, that people in Wisconsin had to choose between risking their life and exercising their right to vote. Yeah, it's interesting, ironic, and uh, it, it, to me as a, a, a normal pre-Trump Republican conservative, we used to be the party in favor of permanent absentee ballots. In fact, we won a lot of elections here in California based on the fact that, you know, we, we knew how to work that system with easy permanent absentee. And, and now we're into a systematic issue. I actually think the disaster that was Wisconsin it was a good thing only in that it's a wake-up call that we cannot have an election day that looks like Wisconsin. I don't care what party you're in. It's whether or not you want our democracy to work. So I think the political pressure on the hours to stop misbehaving with some of this trickery. I mean, it's out, and look, I'm a Republican. I, I used to work for Governor Tommy Thompson. I've run races in Wisconsin. I don't like it when liberals win. But the idea you shut Milwaukee down to just five precincts, it is un-American, and it's a stain on the party. And hopefully the political battle on this one will be run, won by the Ds, because I, I think it's awful. We'll go on to the next question, but I'll say Mike is absolutely right. On election night in 1960, John F. Kennedy carried California. By the time they finished counting the absentee ballots a week later, Nixon had carried California. Next question, Erica. Matt Klink asks, how does Joe Biden demonstrate relevance when he is confined to his house? Well, right now it's hard. I, I'd be doing my Al Roker conversation fireplace chat on streaming, that kind of stuff. But he doesn't need to emerge right now. Yeah. He needs to emerge really well in the aftermath of this, where we see Barack Obama, we see Chris Cuomo, we see the stars of the Democratic Party with a steady hand that exudes competence 
to manage the recovery because this election, like all, will be about the future. And empathy, that he cares, which is easy for Biden because that's who he is. So they package that right. And right now they've got the gift in politics. They're not really drinking from a fire hose. They have time to plan a beautiful unveiling of the fall campaign, and I hope they're using it. Let's do the next question. From John Emerson, he asks, with all the talk about small base, of course, Biden wins the popular vote, probably more than Hillary did. But how does this play out in those six to seven swing states that will decide this thing? I think what we always do, John, is we look at the last election and the nightmare, at least that it was for Democrats, and we extrapolate from it. So a lot of people have been writing about this. The odds that you could pull off again what was pulled off the last time by Trump, that you could carry those three critical states in a way that if you change 37,000 votes, you'd lose them all. I think that's very unlikely. Secondly, if Biden can maintain a lead of six, seven, or eight points, if that's where we are going into election day, I wouldn't worry about that. You get into a two or three point election, it's possible, but you've still got to be very lucky. Yeah, I would just, I agree with all of that. I would add two things. The Democrats have to prevent Trump from getting the suburbs back, particularly Republican suburban women. And they've got, and I think Biden naturally gets this, they've got to turn off the hostility rate from last time at college-educated white guys over 50 or non-college-educated. They don't have to win that group, but if they trim Trump a little there, they break his kneecaps. And I think Biden could do it. They just have to watch the left-wing policy stuff. Next question from Vinci. Do you think the November presidential election needs emergency federal funding to secure the remote voting process? I think it would be a good idea. I don't think it's going to happen. I think this is going to be a messy, long fought out discussion over the next few months. I think there'll be a number of states that expand absentee voting, uh, expand vote by mail. I think uh, Mike is right that Wisconsin was a kind of object lesson where This could actually become a big issue, not just in the presidential campaign, but in Senate and House campaigns, where candidates could be asked, do you really want to, let's say the, the, and God forbid, COVID comes back in late October, early November, as some people predicted, and you've got candidates out there saying, yeah, we think people ought to have to go vote in the middle of a return of this. I don't think that would help them very much. I think it would hurt them. Yeah, I think it's more about the political pressure to not have this trickery. And my, my guess is, I think there is going to be improvement here, and I think a retreat on the Republican side, but there's going to be a fight. I think it's less about money. But look, right now, the easiest thing in the world to do is get money. The next president's going to have to deal with some of the fiscal impact of this uh, because we're spending trillions of dollars like monopoly money right now. We kind of have to, but there's going to be a hangover there, too. Diane Wallace asks, if you were giving advice to candidates at all levels, how would you tell them to run their campaigns? Well, actually, I think you have to tell candidates at all levels, that most campaigns are different. There isn't a single cookie-cutter kind of campaign. But I do think the one thing that's true that comes out of our earlier discussion is every candidate at every level has to learn how to run a non-traditional campaign that has a lot of virtual reality to it. One thing we didn't say, by the way, and I would wonder if Mike agrees with this, this does not apply to assembly races or things like that, But television advertising has usually not been all that important in presidential campaigns. This year, because of the nature of this campaign, I think it may be more important. And I think for congressional campaigns, Senate campaigns, governor's campaigns, it's always been important. And it may become more important, not just on television, but on social media. No, I do agree with that. I think all screens are going to be more important. And presidential campaigns used to be totally driven by media coverage. That'll still be very, very powerful, but I think advertising might have a comeback. As far as how to run a campaign, in my young, irresponsible days when I was chasing Shrum around (laughs) state to state, I used to have a custom uh, license plate, go negative. I generally give candidates two pieces of advice. Run on kitchen table issues that people get. It's about them, not you. And second, defense is nothing but the art of losing slowly. Set the agenda of the campaign and control it. Suzanne Mills asks, Do you think Biden will be able to handle the smearing that Trump will start up again about Hunter Biden, Ukraine, and Sleepy Joe? Two things about that. One, I think there's a certain element of inoculation that Biden has courtesy of the attacks that Trump made on Hillary Clinton, that Hillary Clinton was about to die, that she had a terminal disease. I think there's a higher mountain to climb outside of Trump's base. And Mike talked about the suburbs. 
and especially white women in the suburbs. I think the mountain is very high to climb there. Secondly, I don't think Biden ought to get caught up in totally defending himself. I agree with Mike. Elections are not about the candidate, per se. They're about the voters. And Biden ought to be able to speak to the voters. Yeah, he's going to have to answer those attacks, but he ought to answer them in a way that turns them on Trump and that talks about the things people care about. Yeah, Biden has had a problem with this Hunter Biden thing. People say Hunter Biden and he kind of twitches out. So one of the big Biden growth areas is going to be, can he basically just shut this thing off, which is, that's a bunch of crap. Look at your idiot sons. They ought to be wearing handcuffs. Next question. (laughs) And just go at him and not freeze and get the way he has, which is psychologically very hard for him. Biden's had a lot of tough stuff in his life. And I think his son's challenges have been a sore spot. But if the Republicans sense they can get him to talk about it for two days, it's never going to end. So he's got to be able to deflect, pivot and attack and get really good at it. And I'm sure the Biden campaign people are, are extremely focused on that. But Joe's an old dog, slow to some new tricks. Hopefully you can do it. Aaron Lyles asks, how does Biden turn out the youth vote? It's already an undertaking, but he seems a bit late to the game with the youth quake. And now there's a quarantine wrapped around it. So how does he make headway there? I think Trump turns out the youth vote. Uh, I don't think it's Biden per se who turns out the youth vote. I think there is a very deep desire to get rid of Trump. I've seen this among some of my own students who were not necessarily enthused about Biden, but who are going to vote for him. I see it when I look at Twitter, except with the hardest core of the Bernie contingent. I see people coming over saying, I have to vote for Biden because I care about getting rid of Trump. And one thing that's neglected is Democrats got a much bigger youth turnout in 2018 than was traditional. And they got it for candidates who were center left, not candidates who were, say, Democratic socialists. So I think there's a very good chance that you'll see a pretty big youth vote for Biden. Now, I think Biden will work at it, too. I think they'll work at it as hard as they can, and they're going to try to enlist Bernie Sanders to help them with this. Yeah, I agree with Bob on this. I think it's about fire Trump. But Biden also, if he makes his campaign now post-virus a bit of a movement about rebuilding America, very focused on the next generation, he can, he can sell some extra tickets there. Peter Lefebvre, how big a factor will television ads be in the general campaign? Who will have the advantage? Well, as I said earlier, I think they're going to be more important than they traditionally are in presidential campaigns because we're in a pandemic campaign. The big crowds, the traditional ways of of campaigning are going to be restricted at least for a while. So I think television ads will be very important. I think the real question here and the challenge for the Biden people is to raise the money to make sure that they're very competitive on television and on social media. And remember, the campaign's really going to be about seven states, and that's where the television will pile up. It won't matter here in California. What are the odds that the pandemic and a common experience of it across the country promotes a more common view of public life and social responsibility in the U.S.? That's from Ken McGuire. Zero. <laughs> I'm sorry. Bob, I'm sorry. You I cynic. Wish was, I wish it was true, but if you look at the divisions, the dividing lines you see in all the surveys, People who say this is really a hoax, you know, it's not something we should worry about. We're going to go out and have mass gatherings. And the differences between Republicans and Democrats on a whole series of questions about the pandemic, at least at this point, there's no sign that this is bringing the country together. That is probably right, but I'll depart from the corrosive cynicism of my Democratic friend uh, and just say that. Somebody had a license plate that said go negative. It's talking about uh, years ago. I, I'm a uniter, not a divider, Bob. Um, I'm uniting us against socialism. No, I, I would just say this. If somehow, by hook or by crook or by mistake, it's kind of like hit TV shows. They only often happen by mistake. If somebody tries it in American politics, it'll be a hit because it's what the country wants. But the incentive within the parties and the way politics works now with our tribalism is what Bob identified to do the opposite. But I think there's a little bit of hope because there's going to be so much trauma in the country after this that the one thing about politics, if they stumble into finding out something works, they're not humble about stealing it and and using it. So maybe maybe it'll break out. Instinctively, it is actually the direction which Biden would like to go. 
How do you think COVID-19 changes the politics around health care reform in the fall election? That's a question from Sandra. Well, you know, there have been all these, uh, all these Twitters out there that say this now proves that we ought to have Medicare for all and ought to outlaw all private insurance. The problems with COVID-19 were uh, the failure of early detection when we closed down uh, the branch offices in China, the failure to respond early in terms of tests, the failure even earlier than that to build up supplies like ventilators and protective equipment and masks. And none of that would necessarily have been solved by having a single-payer health system with no insurance companies. I think there will be an impetus after this to say that every American ought to be entitled to health care, and they ought to be entitled to health care they can afford. I don't think that takes people overall to Medicare for all and to abolishing all private insurance. Yeah, I agree. I don't think the political profit is going to be to adding risk to the political, the healthcare system. There is going to be a demand to be ready, as we ought to be for the next pandemic, to increase manufacturing here so we have big stockpiles and we're not as dependent on China. There's going to be a post-pandemic agenda of kind of reform, but big changes? I mean, you don't even hear Bernie and his wing of the party complaining about big pharma anymore. <laughs> so I don't think taking a monkey wrench to the healthcare system, it, it, there's going to be a big, uh, big appetite for that after this uh, horrible experience. If Trump loses in November, who do you see rising in the Republican Party for the 2024 nomination? Mike. That's from Donald. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, we're, we'll see about that. I, uh, it'll be like the Chinese Civil War. There are going to be a lot of warlords running around with 2,000 troops in ornate uniforms claiming power, but there's no one strong person. Uh, there are a bunch of senators, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio, who will wiggle around to do it. There may be some emerging governors. Uh, there will be people trying to imitate Trump, media figures, the Hannity's of the world. It's going to be a, no shortage of candidates. Of course, Pence, who, who might try to claim the lineage of it all. But I do think the bigger question will be the organizing forces in the in Republican primary electorate. Do we want Trump 2.0 or do we want to change the clock to kind of a new opportunity conservatism? That'll be the battle and there'll be candidates on both sides. Mike, you left out one possibility. Trump 1.0. He can lose and then he can run again. And I wouldn't right? put it past him. Well, also he has Donald, you know, a young Don Jr., who I'm sure <laughs> uh, can whistle most of the tune uh, successfully to Hail to the Chief. He's working on that. So, yeah, it's possible. Tim. And with Amendment for, you know, going down in Florida about felons voting, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing there are all kinds of new possibilities in the Trump apparatus. <laughs> it means Eric can vote for his dad, but I'm bummed. Um, all right, moving on. So one of our former fellows, Ron Christie, uh, is joining us, and he asks, do you find parallels between the 2004 election with Bush and Kerry and 2020 with Trump and Biden. More specifically, can Trump narrowly close the deal as Bush did by making the argument not to make a change at the helm with the country in crisis? Let me take that since I was so involved in that <laughs> campaign. First of all, I was not a big fan of George W. Bush's. I wish he was president today. I do not think that George W. Bush and Donald J. Trump are comparable. I think Mike made a case for how Trump could somehow or other build on this to come through. I think it's a very difficult case in the end to, to believe in. People, you have to remember the atmosphere in 2004. People thought of Bush as the nation's protector. And the weekend before you had the Osama bin Laden tape attacking Bush, which could only help him. And you had an ad on in Ohio about a little girl whose mother had been killed in the World Trade Center and who had met the president and been comforted by her. I think it was one of the most effective political ads I've ever seen. So I, no, Ron, I don't think the situations are comparable. I think if somehow or other we came up with a miraculous stroke and things, somebody just stuck up typical left-wing view, sorry. Uh, I think somehow or other if the president came through and there was, by the middle of July, the country was back to normal, we had a quick vaccine, all of that, I still think he'd pay a price for what's happened and what's happened before the pandemic, but it might be a closer election. There's no Trump election that's really like any other election. 
so I, I don't think the analogy is hold up. Uh, Ron, I don't, I don't particularly uh, agree to that. Th- this is a very special, different thing. And uh, the economic pain and the loss of life pain is beginning here. Because even if we flatten the curve, it'll go on for a while. More Americans are going to die from this virus than died in the UK during World War II from the Blitz and the V2 attacks. This is going to be worse than the London Blitz. So this thing is going to be with us to Election Day in some form. And it, it, it is a big deal. And it's, it's, there's not going to be an election where the shadow of all this economic and otherwise doesn't hang over things. This will be the final question, which is, what do you think Biden can do to unite the Democratic Party? He has to talk respectfully to uh, Bernie Sanders without giving in across the board on a whole set of issues like Medicare for all. As I said earlier, they've got to find a way to say we have to guarantee health care to everybody that they can afford. We're going to do it through a very robust public option. I think they have to let uh, Bernie Sanders have his say at the convention and hopefully they can work this all out in advance. So that it's affirmative and not the kind of divisive atmospherics that we saw in 2016. Uh, by the way, to the person who said typical left-wing view, I'm just trying to say analytically what I think. Yeah, look, I agree with Bob on most of that analysis. and I'm a right-wing nut. I would say the best thing Biden can do is look like a winner. And the Democrats just want faith they've got a candidate that's not going to get stomped by Trump. And one of the smartest things Trump ever did, and I don't think it was by intent, it was kind of a lucky accident, is when he won... There's kind of been this mind twist on the Democratic intellectual elite because they say, wait a minute, Nate Silver said he was going to lose. Murphy and Shrum, everybody said he was going to lose, and he won. He's got some secret redneck mind control trick where he can make people vote. He's Rasputin. He can't be beat. The truth is his polls have been crap, and the Republican Party has gotten its butt kicked in every major election and most of the minor ones since he was president. He's done terrible things to our brand, and if you look at what he does, no surprise there, Sherlock. So... This insecurity the, the, the D's have about that, I think the, the numbers uh, don't, don't agree. So Biden just needs to handle the bedwetting, look like a winner, launch a great campaign here in a month or two or three as the pandemic retreats. And uh, then I think Democrats will be happy and the, the troops will line up. I, I'm going to cheat here just because now that I have the heckle feed, somebody had a good question about what states beyond Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania are in play. I would say Florida is in play. It's not a Trump fortress. And, of course, keep an eye on North Carolina and uh, Arizona. Bob, any, anything to add to the magic list? I absolutely agree with that. And I think what's happened in Florida in the last few weeks has put it more and more and more in play. Yeah. Any closing remarks from Bob or Mike before we close this out? I'll quickly say follow us on Twitter. We do a lot of this kind of cool stuff, and we're going to do more of it virtually. So the center's here for all of you from USC. and. Uh, Tune in and see what we're up to. We, we have just a ton of, and we have a podcast. You can listen to all this stuff and a bunch of other programs that's on iTunes. And we'll be back here in the next month doing this again. We're trying to carry out our mission in a very unusual time. Thank you all for coming. Stay separated. Stay isolated. Stay safe. Wash your hands. <laughs> you have power over this. Wash your hands nicely. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 